Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue through the book of Acts and the life and ministry of Paul, as you've probably been able to tell. Like, um, Luke covered over 30 years uh, in about 20 chapters, and, and now he is, he's got the microscope out, and we are zeroing in on something that Luke considers to be very significant. Um, the providence of God and ultimately getting Paul to Rome and, and Paul's various trials. And so he's spending lots of time and focus on the trials of the Apostle Paul. This morning we're in chapter 23 and chapter 24. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Luke writes, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he, Felix, said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded them to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that all these things were so. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, not long ago, I saw a clip 
of a wonderful movie that was made back in 2003 about the life and ministry of Martin Luther. It's simply titled Luther. You may have seen it. It's, it's outstanding. Hadn't seen it in years. But the clip that I saw that recounts what happened at the Diet of Worms, it recounts one of the most dramatic moments in religious history. It was 500 years ago, this past, April 17th, that Martin Luther appeared at a special council after being summoned by the newly elected emperor, Charles V, to answer, to answer for some of the things that he had written. At this council, Luther was asked if he was willing to renounce his errors and the works that he had published therein, and his books were lying out on a table, much of which surrounded the doctrine that we know as justification. Luther was told that if he would not publicly renounce these errors and submit himself to the authority of the church, he would be excommunicated. And excommunication in the 16th century was far more serious and concerning than being shunned by a local church. Excommunication in the 16th century more often than not carried with it the penalty of torture and death carried out by the civil authorities. So, Luther asked if he could come back the next day to give his answer. He wanted to think about it. I think you can understand why he would want 24 hours to well consider what he was going to say. Here's what he said the next day. He famously said, Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Beloved, I would say that's one of the most dramatic and important moments in the history of the church. When given the opportunity to recant, Luther refused, saying that it was dangerous to go against his conscience. But he wasn't the first to do this. 1,500 years before the Diet of Worms, the Apostle Paul was also on trial and had the opportunity to recant his faith and to take back the things that he did and said. And of course, the Apostle Paul refused to do so. He stayed true to his conscience and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ when it was incredibly dangerous for Paul to do so. This is a very, very exciting portion of Scripture by way of the briefest reviews. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul was arrested by peacefully, while peacefully worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. There was such hatred toward Paul for taking the gospel, the gospel and the Jewish faith, if you will, to the Gentiles. There was such hatred and animus toward him that 50 people made an oath before God that they would not touch the taste of food again until they had killed him. And so this plot to ambush Paul was hatched. And were it not for Paul's nephew, who in the providence of God heard about it and told Claudius Lysias about it, the Apostle Paul would have been a dead man. 
But when the Romans, through Paul's nephew, got wind of the plans, they put together a small army of people to spirit Paul out of Jerusalem at 9 p.m. that night to get him out of harm's way. Our scripture reading picks up in the middle of this, if you look in your bulletins. Chapter 23, verse 23, we're going to pick up here. Chapter 23, verse 23. Then he... This is Claudius Lysias. This is the tribune who has listened to Paul's nephew and believes what he's saying is true. So he's going to get Paul out of there. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That's 9 p.m. He wanted Paul to be taken over 75 miles northwest without delay. Verse 24, also provide mounts or horses for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Okay, Claudius Lysias, he's the tribune. That means the same thing as a Roman commanding officer. And he has got a mess on his hands. It is his duty, his responsibility to keep the peace and to enforce order. And he really doesn't know what to do. He knows Paul's not guilty, but he needs to appease the Jews. He doesn't know what to do. He hears about this plot. If something like this happened on his watch, if Paul was killed in this ambush, it would have been very difficult for him. So he gets this small army to take Paul away to the port city of Caesarea, where he had, where Felix, the governor of this area, had his palace and did his ruling. Okay, look at verse 25. So Claudius Lysias is basically punting, if you will, and going up the chain of command and sending Paul up to Caesarea where Felix, the Roman governor, resided. Felix was kind of like Pontius Pilate, okay, as it relates back to the trials of Jesus. Verse 25, and he, Claudius Lysias, wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, meaning from him. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix greetings this man Paul was seized by the Jews and he was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen which gave Paul certain rights and privileges verse 28 and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him I brought him down to their council I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Okay? So it's already clear, Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, the Roman commanding officer, he knew there was nothing to this. There were no concerns related to Roman law whatsoever. Okay, so here we go. I'm sorry, my little, my little microphone is not cooperating. So here we go. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Okay, that's about 30 to 32 miles northwest of Jerusalem, also on the coast. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. 
And the next day, they, the foot soldiers, returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. That means these foot soldiers would have marched over 30 miles in one night. You know, maybe in a 12-hour period. And then they come back to Jerusalem the next day. That shows you how durable and how tough these Roman foot soldiers were. Verse 33. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter from Claudius Lysias to the governor Felix, they, also pre they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he, Felix, asked what province he, Paul, was from. And when Felix learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him, Paul, to be guarded in Herod's praetorium, like in his, his palace complex, verse, or chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down. Essentially, when you leave Jerusalem, you always go down because Jerusalem is on like a little mountain, if you will. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They had laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, most scholars think that Tertullus was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he's a Greek-born Jew, a Jew born outside the promised land. Okay, the Sanhedrin would have brought in the heavy guns. This attorney, if you will, for the Sanhedrin would have been an expert in Roman law and perhaps even knew Felix. Okay? So let's see what happens here. Verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, now this is just a summary. Luke is giving us a summary of all that was said. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Okay, it would be amazing if Tertullus was able to say this with a straight face, okay? If they had a fact-checking organization during this time, he would have gotten four Pinocchios, okay? The nation of Jews hated Felix with every fiber in their body. He was incompetent, he was barbaric, he was savage, and in just two years, the Roman Emperor Nero, who was not known for his patience or care, due to Felix's incompetence and savagery, has him removed. That's how bad Felix is. Those of you who are familiar, okay, with Leave it to Beaver, he was the first century form of Eddie Haskell, okay? I mean, he was buttering up Felix with everything that he had. Nothing about Tertullus' opening statement was true. Jews couldn't stand Felix, and he was completely incompetent. Verse 4, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, 
By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Okay, isn't that interesting? If you just examine him, you'll find out that everything we're saying is true. Okay, was he saying just like Paul's just going to agree to all your charges? What Tertullus probably means is by examining him, probably means like rough him up a little bit. Let's push him around a little bit and then he'll chirp like a canary. In other words, you know, beat him up. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him, wink, wink, nod, nod, about everything of which we accuse him. Verse 9. The Jews also joined in the charge, meaning Ananias and those who were with Ananias, the high priest. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So, while Tertullus was full of it in a lot of ways, okay, he was a, an excellent, competent attorney, what do you think he was trying to do? If you're just reading through the account of these proceedings, what was Tertullus's goal before Felix? This sounds different in some ways that the charges and the things that were brought against him in a previous trial. What is he trying to do? He's trying to reframe the charges in such a way so that Felix will view him as a threat under Roman law, okay? Look at the first charge against him as Tertullus explains it. Verse 5. He, Paul, he stirs up riots all over the world. The Romans, for many years, had used all their resources to establish what's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, okay? Their military was charged with keeping the peace. If Tertullus could convince Felix that Paul, somehow, his existence, okay, would cause instability throughout the Roman Empire, that would be a problem. That would be something that Felix would have to do something about. So he's trying to make Paul look like a person who's stirring up riots everywhere. Now, there is a grain of truth to this, right? Wherever Paul went... Riots happened. Difficulties happened. People hated Paul. Okay, the people from Ephesus got so mad that the preaching of the gospel stopped, you know, the, the idol trade. Okay, they couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't sell their idols anymore because people were believing in the one true God. And so that was really affecting commerce. And so they wanted Paul killed and stoned. And so riots did follow him. But it's not because of what a Paul was doing directly. So the first charge is he's stirring up riots all over the world. Second thing they accuse Paul of, Tertullus does, is he's the ringleader. Okay, He wants to saddle Paul with the title of being some kind of ringleader. He's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So why does Tertullus refer to Paul here as the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes? Because typically... Uh, you know, from the perspective of the, of the Romans, there was no difference between Christians and Jews. So Tertullus is going out of his way to help the Romans understand that Christians and Jews should not be confused with one another. Okay? And by describing him as the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes, okay, it makes him look like a rabble-rouser. Okay? It associates Christians... With Jesus from Nazareth, remember in John chapter 1, Nathaniel, what did he ask about Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
If anybody ever calls you a Nazarene, that is one of the highest compliments that a person could receive. To be associated with Jesus of Nazareth is actually a great honor and privilege. Okay, so he's trying to portray Paul as some kind of ringleader, someone who creates riots everywhere. Third charge, verse 6, he tried to profane the temple. He's stirring up things in the temple. Of course, Paul didn't do that. These three together would have painted Paul as a revolutionary whose very existence was a threat to the peace of Rome. Okay, now go to panel 5. We're going to look at chapter 24, verses 10 through 27. But don't worry, this is very exciting, very exciting. We're interacting with lots of scripture, but it's intrinsically interesting. Acts 24, verse 10 on panel 5. Now the governor, Felix, gives Paul his turn. Notice Paul doesn't have any counsel there. Okay, Paul is representing himself. And when the governor, Felix, had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. Notice that he's respectful, but he doesn't flatter. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, that's true, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues. There were synagogues all over Jerusalem or in the city. I wasn't stirring up trouble anywhere. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Okay, in other words, this, is, this happened less than two weeks ago. Okay, it should be easy for you to find witnesses to support the charges against me. But no witnesses could be found. It wasn't because it happened so long ago. It happened just 12 days ago. No excuse not to have witnesses there. Verse 12, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you. So he says, if I'm guilty of something... This is what I'm guilty of. He gets to the crux of the matter. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. In other words, I'm the true Jew. I'm the faithful Jew here. Verse 15. I have a hope in God, which... These men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's exactly what Luther referred to. Never wise to go against one's conscience. Okay? He's saying, I have to testify that really at its base, at its, at its crux, the nub of it, it's all about resurrection. The resurrection is at the heart of of the Christian claim. If that's not true, then nothing's true. If that is true, then everything is true. Verse 17. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Okay, that's why Paul has come to Jerusalem in the first place. He was coming with an offering for famine relief to the struggling Christian Jews in Jerusalem. That's why he had come 
back to Jerusalem. After several years, I came to bring alms, meaning this gift, to my nation, to the struggling, impoverished Christian Jews in Jerusalem, and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified. I was clean. I was in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Okay, I wasn't making a disturbance. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. And they weren't. They were legally obligated to be there and present their evidence for what they were claiming. No one was there along those lines. Verse 20. Or else let these men themselves, Ananias and the others, say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, he's coming back to this, okay? He's saying, this is what I've been saying. I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So for Paul... Everything comes down to whether or not the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. That's the reason he was the apostles to the Gentile. That accounts for his conversion. That's why he's there today. Interesting verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he was in Caesarea, Cornelius the centurion, and Caesarea came to faith probably 20 years before. There were lots of Christians in Caesarea. Felix would have been very aware of the Christian claim, verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. This was his way of punting, okay, um, for the moment, of delaying, while he tried to figure out what he wanted to do. Then he gave orders to the centurion, that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. He's going to be under house arrest, if you will. And that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Okay, so really Felix doesn't know what to do. He's between a rock and a hard place. Claudius Lysias has already told him in his initial letter that he, Claudius Lysias, found nothing to these charges. He had done nothing worth of, of death worthy of death or imprisonment. So Claudius Lysias has already spoken. There's no point in even calling for Claudius Lysias. And he can hear from what Paul's saying that Paul is not a threat. He's very familiar with the way. But he doesn't know what to do. Okay, he doesn't want to just let Paul go and make the Jews mad. You know, he, he's between a rock and a hard place. Um, and so he, so he delays, he stalls. Okay, now things are about to get very interesting from a spiritual standpoint. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla. So while Paul is in house arrest, Felix comes with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, Luke tells us, and he sent for Paul. Why? To hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. When Paul was converted, the Lord Jesus through Ananias said, you're going to speak before kings and the rulers of the Gentiles, and that day had come. So while he was in house arrest, Drusilla, his wife, and Felix decided they wanted to hear more about who Jesus was from the Apostle Paul. Verse 25, and as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness, what he means is what godly living looks like, 
And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. See, Felix was overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel literally mean? What does gospel mean? It means good news. The gospel is only good news in the context of very bad news. Bad news about sin and judgment. I think we can infer from what Luke is saying that Paul had spoken with Felix and Drusilla about their lifestyle, their life choices. Felix had convinced Drusilla to divorce her husband and marry him. They were living in sin. Felix had refused to convert to any kind of Judaism. Okay? He lived a very profligate life. And so there's no doubt that Paul was talking to Felix and Drusilla about what was going on in their life. About righteousness, about what godly living looks like, about self-control. They needed to exercise self-control. And ultimately it culminated in the judgment of God. The text indicates that Felix was alarmed. He was terrified. He was frightened. Okay? And so he stops the conversation. All this talk of righteousness and self-control and judgment frightened Felix to the degree that he wanted to hear no more and he sends Paul away. This is a tragedy. He is so close. So close. And yet so far away. You know, you can't flee the judgment of the living God by putting your hands over your ears and running away. There is no escape. The only escape from the judgment of God is by running to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. I would say other than Pontius Pilate, no one had ever been so close to salvation and yet walked away from it. Can you imagine? He had access, unmitigated access, to the single most important evangelist in the history of the church. And he becomes more interested in talking about money or, or finding a way for Paul to bribe him than he is about salvation. So sad. So sad what happens with Felix here. So if we look at our text, verse 25, as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Verse 26, at the same time, he, Felix, hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. He probably knew about the gift that Paul brought to the struggling church in Jerusalem. He knew that Paul could have raised money from the churches around him. But Paul refused to do so. His focus shifted from knowing more about Jesus to wanting to build up his bank account. Verse 26. At the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Look at verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. I cannot imagine 
being more short-sighted than this. In just two years, Felix is replaced because of incompetence and his savagery. We learn from Josephus and others that Drusilla died in 79 AD along with their son um, due to the eruption at Mount Vesuvius. Life is so short. This is just a one-point sermon. And here's the nub of it. Don't let this happen to you. Don't let the words of life pass you by. There is nothing more important in this short life of ours than trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man was so close, and yet he was so far away. The question that we should all be asking ourselves is what have we done with the Lord Jesus? Are we doing with the Lord Jesus what Felix did? Or are we doing with the Lord Jesus what the Apostle Paul did? Trusting in him with all that he was and all that he has. Beloved, where are you on this this morning? Have you really and truly given your heart and your life to Lord Jesus Christ? Do you trust him with everything that you are? Because when it comes to righteousness and self-control and judgment day, beloved, the Lord Jesus is our only hope. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. We thank you for this incredible material. We thank you for this letter from Luke to the churches of his day to describe the origin, the genesis, the growth of the early church and Paul's central role in it. Father, I pray that you would help us to be like the Apostle Paul. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that there is nowhere to go. No one to whom we can go other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would give every single person and this congregation today the gift of faith to trust in the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that all of us here today would trust in him and his blood and his righteousness, knowing that judgment day is ultimately coming for all of us. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.